I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. Each week, we do our best to draw out our guests to bring you candid conversations filled with personality, insights, and no-nonsense perspectives about business. On this episode, we welcome a guest who needs no encouragement in any of these areas. There's more political risk today to being an owner of real estate than certainly there has been in the last 50 years. That's none other than Sam Zell, the chairman of Equity Group Investments, a Chicago-based firm that he founded more than 50 years ago. The son of Polish immigrants, Sam is a self-made billionaire and the author of a memoir titled, Am I Being Too Subtle? Straight Talk from a Business Rebel. I've constantly moved the bar forward so that I get up every morning and there's a new hill to climb, a new challenge. That's what turns me on. In a wide-ranging conversation, Sam will share his personal and professional memories with his views on the most pressing issues of our time, including his takes on the COVID crisis, the pandemic's impact on cities, and how to build a corporate culture. We'll discuss wealth and risk and how a trailer park changed his life's work. We'll also explore big picture ideas about capitalism, the value of freedom, and Sam's brand of fiscal conservatism. Coming up, a zealous conversation with a true voice of experience, someone who really needs no introduction, Sam Zell. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Let's just start right at the number one topic that everybody's talking about in real estate today, which is the future of office and work from home. So, Sam, what's your point of view? Well, my point of view is that all of this discussion about work from home, it doesn't really merit the amount of time that's been given to the subject. I think when all is said and done, we are a social group of people. We have figured out how to make one plus one equal three by putting people together. As someone who employs you know, thousands of people. I haven't figured out how to motivate by modem. I think that Zoom is a terrific idea, but Zoom doesn't create the kind of connection that sitting across the table from somebody has. I can give you examples of, uh, you know, during the COVID year, you know, we've had various board meetings the board meetings have ended up being almost half as long as they were prior to that. And the reason is that the Zoom format doesn't encourage the kind of cross-collateralization of discussion that normally uh, would be part of a board meeting and becomes more of a presentation of facts rather than a, a strategy session with the goal of trying to find the right answer. My view is that business success comes from interaction, from sharing of ideas, from competition. What I'm saying in a broader sense is that companies have personalities. Companies have communities. Those personalities and those communities make a very, very significant contribution to the success of those companies. 
And I don't think that can be replicated by a decentralized version where people aren't interfacing with each other. And therefore, I believe that, you know, as Mark Twain said, that the you know, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. So too would I say that reports of the death of office space uh, are greatly exaggerated. So from what you're saying, it all comes down to a word that comes up a lot on our show, culture. You can't build a culture remotely. Now, there may be, you know, some variations. There may be companies with policies that say, uh, you know, you got to be in the office four days a week, but you can take one day and be remote. Um, Frankly, I think that, you know, something like that is likely to happen. But the reality of it is that if you're sitting there on Thursday and you didn't get the deal done or you didn't finish whatever it is you were doing and somebody said, whoops, I guess I'm not going to be here tomorrow because it's my, quote, day at home working, you could get a lot less sympathy and, frankly, a lot less support. So I think ultimately, you know, the competitive environment within companies and within the office space that they contain, I think will have a much bigger impact on the future of working from home than any policy. You mentioned competition and competition perhaps between employees to get the deal, to get the client. Uh, But you also mentioned in your book, there's no substitute for limited competition. And I would argue, Sam, that there is so much competition right now in commercial real estate, so much money in it, chasing quite candidly, a relatively small part of our business, industrial and other forms of operational real estate. Do you see the same thing, that there's too much money in the space? And does that limit opportunity for others? Well, you know, the definition of too much money in the space basically, you know, revolves around the question of price. So the question of, quote, unquote, limiting opportunities for others I think is kind of uh, not really relevant to the real estate business. Scarcity, which is what you're talking about, where there's too much money chasing too few deals, uh, scarcity pushes up price. You know, so does an oligopoly or a monopoly. I think that competition has always been part of our business, and there are always parts of it that are doing better than others. I mean, exactly a year ago, I was chairman of the Board of Equity Residential, and we had never seen anything like what happened from March through probably June of last year. In San Francisco and New York, rents dropped 25%. Occupancy dropped. And it was a very, very scary thing as the stock market reflected that same thing where we kind of froze over COVID and everybody moved into their parents' basement, as the case might be. Interestingly enough, starting in December, we had the biggest month we've ever had in December. Normally a very quiet month in the multifamily business. And since that time, we've basically recovered all of the occupancy we lost And rates have probably recovered 70% or more of the drop that occurred a year ago. So COVID is going to probably result, as far as family is concerned, as a, quote, drop. Take the same topic and talk about retail real estate. 
And uh, you have to believe that you're still dealing with a falling knife. I mean, I don't think we know where the bottom is. I mean, do we think that retail is over? Hardly. Did we start out with a lot of retail? Five times more per person than any country in the world? Yes. So maybe this dramatic drop is just the beginning of a realignment of the amount of retail and the population. Shifting gears, Sam, how do you see this in the office sector, which we started talking about at the top of the show? I think the real issue with the office market was that it was significantly in oversupply before COVID. In other words, it was facing a significant oversupply, primarily because of WeWork and other space-sharing companies that thought that they had figured out a new solution. And the result was that an enormous amount of space was leased in anticipation of subleasing it that never happened. And that didn't stop the impact on the statistics in the communities suggesting that office space was becoming scarce. And so we ended up in here in Chicago with five new million plus square foot buildings that are going to emptying out LaSalle Street and other areas. Same thing has happened in New York and San Francisco. And it's going to take quite a while, I think, for that new space or the orphans that that new space created get readjusted and and re-rented. But it's going to be a long haul, and uh, there's going to be a lot of office buildings that are going to end up being residential. Or, I don't know, maybe vertical farms. I don't know what, but some other usage other than office space because we have too much of it. Well, vertical farms would be cool, Sam. Uh, I have not put that into my research reports yet, but that may be my next ad. But you use the word that I want to go back to, realignment. I'll use it in in two contexts. One is the movement of people from the megacities, the Chicago's, the New York's, to the Nashville's and the Raleigh's. The second is within cities, because you mentioned there may be some oversupply within Chicago office, but I would point to Chicago reinventing itself through the Fulton Market, New York reinventing itself through the meatpacking district, uh, Miami through the Wynwood section. So Realignment, is it real? Is it going to move people from the megacities to the smaller cities? But aren't these cities resilient and will come back by changing the neighborhoods where people go? Well, I'm only almost 80 years old. And so I only have the benefit of maybe five or six times dealing with the prediction that New York was done for. And I never believed any of those. And I don't believe it now. As I've suggested, you can work from home and move to Iowa, but it gets to be 5 o'clock in Iowa the same way it gets to be 5 o'clock in New York. Uh, The difference is in New York, you got a lot of things to do, and in Iowa, you get to watch the corn grow. I really don't believe that there is any spreading scenario of, of people working, you know, really remote. Now, obviously, there are some professions for which that really is suitable. And those professions tend to be scenarios where one person does most of the work alone. So maybe if you're a coder, you can be in a remote location. But everything else is interconnected with people, interconnected with themes, interconnected with leadership 
you know, provided by businesses. Well, I just want to say for the record that I did attend the Iowa State Fair two years ago, uh, Sam, and I saw a 1,200-pound bull and, and animals made out of butter. So there are things there beyond just the business community. Well, I guess you can five o'clock go look at the animal with the butter. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, Sam, you've been an innovator in so many ways, but one of the ways is going into what we call today operational real estate, real estate that is beyond the five major asset classes. And the the one I would point to is uh, equity lifestyles and manufactured housing. Uh, You got in there years before the institutional money went there. And now the institutional money can't get enough of that. They can't get enough of cold storage, data centers, life sciences, all these things that used to be hard to run and used to be sold at a discount. What changed today and what got you into it in the first place? Well, you asked a bunch of different questions, so let me see if I can break it up. I think that not enough credit is given to the creation of the modern REIT era. The modern REIT era basically defined the concept of liquid real estate. It also, though, defined the concept of running real estate like it's a company. That's quite a hell of a difference from the historical developer who secured a piece of land, found a tenant and developed the building and the day after he delivered the building, you know, his involvement was gone. So I think that the creation and the growth of the modern real era has created a bunch of real estate executives who are really executives of a business as opposed to one-off developers. But how'd you get into that, Sam? The institutionalization of operational real estate. I actually have a a terrific story, and it's a story about us in the early 80s deciding that, you know, capital was our beverage, or leverage was our beverage, to put it more bluntly, And that we needed to acquire a syndicator because syndication of real estate was becoming a big thing in the early 80s. And we finally made a deal with this one company and we began to do the due diligence. And the guy in my shop who was doing the due diligence calls me one day and says, Sam, I've seen something that I think is really extraordinary. It's a mobile home park. I said, a mobile home park? I said, that's Marlon Brando yelling, Stella. You know, that's the tumbleweed, you know, blowing and rolling on the windy, you know, barren site. He says, you don't understand what's happened. They've taken the mobile home park business and created these parks And the parks look just like single-family subdivisions. They're beautifully maintained. And you are the owner of the land, and it's the most secure piece of real estate you could imagine. We ended up buying the company, and that was 1984. And as far as I know, I don't think anybody else in the commercial real estate business knew anything about mobile homes. And when we started buying more mobile homes, there was always kind of the same story. There was a 
a lawyer who was invited to help own this mobile home park and he'd never owned anything that had you know as consistent predictable earnings he didn't tell anybody about it and and so you ended up with this whole cadre of owners across the country that were not part of the conventional real estate business then we took the company public in 1993 and it included you know the total uh, enterprise value was about 200 and Roughly $50 million, $225 million. It's 2021. Uh, you know, we've got a, a, a company today that's got a, uh, an enterprise value, I think, of 12 and a half or $13 billion. And it's been the number one growing REIT uh, since uh, the beginning of the modern REIT era. It's a very different perspective on quote-unquote, being in the real estate business than the guy uh, with calluses on his hands, you know, holding up the studs and, and, and putting the deal together. Sure. Well, it's very interesting how you frame the success of real estate in part on the structure of the REIT, on people institutionalizing not just the nature of the capital, but the nature of the company that owns the assets. And interestingly, in your book, you talk about emerging market economies and some of the challenges of forming REITs there. And so I'd like to turn there then, Sam. In your book, you talk a lot about some emerging market economies you like, that you visited, where you see opportunities. So I'd love to hear about some of those economies and what can bring them forward. Well, I think that you know, we got involved in the emerging markets in 1997. Our motivation was that we saw what the creation of the modern REIT era had done to creating liquidity. And we were convinced that there was an opportunity to do so in emerging markets, um, as well as in you know, established markets like Japan. In many cases, it really turned out to be a political problem, which up front I didn't understand but like anything else, REITs sounded terrific until it was Xerox that was being gored. The Japanese REITs today are successful. They're nowhere near as successful as they could have been. But they're really controlled by the big major real estate companies. And they've promoted and adopted a management operation where these companies are externally managed and the external managers are owned by the major real estate companies. That's a conflict of interest that has a real impact on slowing down the growth and the innovation of an industry. But that was a political decision in a place like Japan, in a place like Mexico, you know, we worked with the president of Mexico in 1996 to pass a read law. It took until, I think, 2015 before they had a read law. And then the read law was, you know, again, full of provisions limiting its ability and flexibility and its ability to grow. And then they're stunned because it hasn't grown. But, you know, there's nothing to replace an open system like what we have in the United States. And that's why we've taken a REIT market that in 1991 was $7 billion and today is over a trillion dollars. That's called growth of an asset class. For sure. And you talk about the open systems. Let's, let's go a little macro here for a moment, Sam. Let's talk about 
what the government has done to intervene with the COVID crisis. And one might go so far as to say is we've abandoned laissez-faire capitalism in exchange for printing money. What's your point of view, Sam? Well, I'd like to think that uh, this is a one-shot scenario and that we have, quote-unquote, responded to COVID the same way we responded to World War II. And in effect said, during this period of stress, we're not going to be disciplined by, you know, you don't spend what you don't earn. I hope I'm right. Maybe hard to make a case that I'm right based on what's going on in Congress today. We'll see a lot by virtue of what happens on this current quote-unquote infrastructure bill. I am and always have been uh, a fiscal conservative. I don't think you can take the United States and, you know, 10 years ago we were at, on whatever it is, 50% of our GDP in debt, and now we're at 102 in a 10-year period of time. All of those borrowings have to be repaid. And you think about risk-free rate of return, risk-free rate of return for 30 years was 5.6%. If 5.6% were applied to our current debt levels, our country would be broke. So we've got to, in effect, continue interest rates at low levels in order to be able to service our debt and make some dent in repaying it. Doing that and keeping inflation, you know, restrained is very difficult if you're sending uh, stimulus checks to people who don't need it. So is, is it fair to say then, Sam, you are a little worried about inflation? Yes, yes. I mean, I'm worried about, uh, you know, a government that seems to be irresponsible on uh, costs and, and insensitive to what this kind of a debt structure means. And ultimately, what we're really talking about is the role and the value of the U.S. dollar. We have an extraordinary crutch in America because our currency is the reserve currency. Things would be a lot more expensive if the reserve currency were something else other than the U.S. dollar. Yet we're polluting its value. And, and at some point, if we don't get you know, better at it, the U.S. dollar will no longer be the reserve currency. And the impact on the United States will be quite serious. And I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20 percent of our standard of living is predicated on the crutch that comes from being the reserve currency. I think we're both in agreement that there's greater inflationary risks that, but we're also in agreement that I'm glad the government didn't take its foot off the gas during the crisis because we needed the money. But uh, I think we both would agree that moving forward, we've got to find a way to either grow our way out of this or otherwise reduce the debt level. So any ideas just from a macro standpoint, how does the U.S. grow faster? Is it bringing manufacturing back? What makes us grow faster? Well, we make ourselves grow faster by focusing on the growth and recognizing that the only way to balance the books is really through growth. I think that particularly since 2008, there's been much too much emphasis on redistribution 
of wealth. Redistribution of wealth is a governor on growth. And that's why we've had you know, so many years of subpar growth. I think that we've got to be very careful that we don't let the government superimpose political views on what I'd call the basics of our economy. I mean, we have a unique system. It's the uh, most attractive economic system in the world. Everybody wants to be in the United States because of what you can do here and the freedoms that it represents. And uh, I think that overemphasizing the role of government is not a productive, you know, solution. Well, Sam, you did bring up uh, redistribution, and I will bring up ESG, environmental social governance. Um, And clearly, given some of the events that we've seen in the last year, it's becoming much more top of mind for, I would say, most investors, or certainly many investors. What's your point of view, Sam? Well, I think that question is, are you in favor of apple pie? And do you believe in mothers? You know, ESG, there's very little in ESG that I can complain about. And uh, I have no trouble being a supporter of those goals. I think the question on the table is, at what price and to what extent? Am I a supporter of uh, companies that pollute the environment? No. Uh, Am I a supporter of groups that are on the far extremes of uh, any of these issues? No. And it's, it's that balance that we need. I mean, we need to protect our environment. We need to protect and not foul our nest. But we need to also make sure that we don't allow current fads or goals or artificial limitations to pollute the system that we've created that's the envy of the world. Sam, you talked about, when you were talking about emerging market economies, um, political risk. In fact, risk, I would say, and again, there's a lot of themes in your book, but you talk about underwriting risk as maybe being the central thing to do when you're underwriting a, a new acquisition. Do you think that risks have increased in the United States in the last couple of years that make perhaps it less attractive versus other countries? I'm not sure that I would accept the way you phrased it. I think, you know, a better way to look at it is that let's just deal with the one question of have risks increased? And I would say that risks have increased in the United States. There's more political risk today to being an owner of real estate than certainly there has been in the last 50 years. Whether it was the legislation passed by uh, the state of New York that changed a lot of the rules to you know, various rent control provisions, those are very uh, threatening and generally increase risk, despite the fact that there's never been a successful scenario of rent control in the history of the world. And every time, you know, there's a new Santa Monica or a new uh, place to use it, it sounds terrific, but it so disincentivizes the real estate community and therefore depreciates one of the great assets of any given society. So I guess I'd say that there's more risk in that political area. There's also probably more risk 
in the environment we live in, as best exemplified by a COVID outbreak. This is a very, very global world we live in. You could say, well, it's a one in a hundred year event. It's very hard for me to accept that. And it's more likely to be a similar kind of event happening in a shorter period of time. So that's a different kind of risk. And just the risk of change. Look what's happened to uh, retail. You know, we've gone from a, you know, retail was the most in-demand form of commercial real estate. You just couldn't own anything better than something that had stores paying the rent. You know, and then e-commerce came along and uh, certainly changed how that works. Maybe office space will be changed as a result of e-commerce as a result of COVID-19. You know, so there's a lot of things possible to add to your risk factor in this kind of an environment that we live in today. Sam, you've been buying real estate for over 50 years, starting when you were in law school, University of Michigan. But a lot of my guests on this show say, you know, data and algorithms allow me to buy stuff by remote control from my screen. My algorithms is better than human judgment. So, Sam, I'd love your point of view. How has your underwriting of deals changed, if at all, in the last 50 years with the influx of data and algorithms? There's no question that data is critical to being a real estate investor. In the early days, before the internet, the typical bank manager who made a bad real estate loan. When the loan went bad, he would tell his board, how was I supposed to know that they were building all these new buildings? Well, that excuse doesn't fly anymore because there's no excuse today. I mean, in the old days, part of our competitive advantage was we did better homework and were therefore better prepared for changes, whether they oversupply or, or different usages or different locations. We were better prepared, and that was how one of the competitive advantages we had. The Internet, in that respect, has been a leveler. If you're a lender and uh, you're going to make a loan in Austin, Texas, uh, you can pull up on the screen current information, the historical information. You know, that's something that maybe some old guy 50 years ago knew about the local area. The dissemination of the information was limited to who he talked to. Compare that to today, where you click a few icons and, uh, and it all comes, you know, to your forefront. As far as algorithms are concerned, I'm not disputing artificial intelligence. But I must tell you that the tenants are people. And I'd much rather rely on people to make the decisions as to what is attractive and what isn't versus some artificial algorithm. Maybe the artificial algorithm becomes the confirmation point. I, I don't know. 
but I'm not in any way, shape, or form prepared to delegate the, the, the concept or the responsibility for judging risk and judging, you know, futures to uh, some kind of algorithmic response. Sam, I'd like to turn this conversation just a bit into some of the more intangible qualities of leadership in the real estate business, not just buying stuff, but leadership and values and where they come from. And, and quite candidly, I was really touched by the story that you told in your book about your dad. And I intentionally wore an open collared shirt today to show you the chain that I wear every day since my father passed away. And why do I wear this chain? And I know, uh, I believe, Sam, you mentioned you have a bracelet you wear uh, as well. It reminds me of the values my dad gave me about being honest. The most important thing you can ha- be is a, an honest man. And so maybe we'll start there. Tell us how your upbringing instilled in you the values that you have today and how you instill them in others. Well, I was born 90 days after my parents came to this country. I therefore grew up in a real immigrant household. And since my parents were escapees, for lack of a better word, and left Poland in 1939, their perspective and their focus in the United States is really different. They thought the streets were paved with gold because they were free, because there weren't any uh, groups or, or government that singled them out or in any way, shape, or form diminished their opportunities. I grew up, you know, with them, you know, pounding at the dinner table what it meant that there was a direct relationship between how well you did and how hard you worked. Um, those are the kinds of pieces that, you know, kind of assemble in your head as you're a grown-up. I would obviously try and convince my parents, you know, they were in a new country and this was a new world and they needed to modify their views. Certainly over their lifetime in the United States, they modified their views somewhat. But each step was very painful. So, you know, I mean, I'm in high school and I, you know, Friday night I go to the, you know, the, the basketball game. And I have a great time with my friends. And uh, the following week, I say, I'm going to go to the basketball game again uh, on Friday night. And he says to me, that's ridiculous. You, you already went once. Uh, you know, uh, study, read, you know, in effect, just an encouragement of making oneself better was a very integral part of that whole growing up process. I think the other part of that growing up process was the focus that he put on me to understand that I was different. That conventional acceptance was interesting, but irrelevant to who I was and what I was doing. I can't tell you how many times this sentence ended up with, but you're different. You know, can I go to the movies tonight? You went last night. You're different. Um, You know, go read, go study, go, you know, go add something to your capability. You know, there's too much fun in the world. Obviously, my father and my parents grew up in 
you know, in a very different Eastern European location, and that was very different kinds of values. And and over it, you know, they came here in 1941. My dad died in 1986, so. He was here for 45 years, and clearly he wasn't the same man 45 years later than when he came, but who he thought he was, who he wanted other people to perceive him to be, really hadn't changed much at all. And consequently, yeah, he was a leader, he was uh, a very strong individual, and someone I both looked up to and uh, loved, although I should tell you that his perspective was that the most important thing was that a child should respect his parents. Love was kind of a, a, you know, a surplus, and that's certainly different than today. Sam, I think one of the things that your dad said to you, uh, you are different. How has being yourself helped you in your business success? The single most relevant word is freedom. More than anything else, my ambition was driven by my desire for freedom. Freedom meant that I didn't have to wear a suit. Freedom meant that I could ride a motorcycle. Freedom meant that I could do things that other people couldn't do or wouldn't do. To me, that's been a critical part of who my life is. I think I've been very successful because one of the freedoms that I have achieved is a freedom of conventional wisdom. I started with nothing. And so my achievement had to include capital gains, not just income. So I was constantly trying to figure out how to achieve or or accumulate capital. That made me different and made me recognize that if you followed conventional wisdom, margins would also be conventional. That only in unconventional directions, like being a grave dancer, can you in effect achieve capital gains that ultimately lead to a base for economics. There have been some less flattering things, and you suggested the term yourself grave dancer. It's in your book. You've written articles on it. What does that mean, and how does that apply to your business success? Well, I think that I have historically been able to look at things, usually from a longer perspective than the average. In 1971, commercial real estate was, you know, 95% occupied across the country. And my specialty at the time was multifamily housing. I was responsible for putting up financing to build a lot of multifamily housing. And then all of a sudden I recognized that uh, we were heading into excess. And so I stopped and yet, My confidence, and this goes back to being an immigrant's kid, my confidence in the future of our country was really very, very, continued to be very strong. But it was clear to me that we were going to go through a period of dislocation. 
And to me, that dislocation turned into an opportunity. Being a grave dancer suggests that, you know, one prances around areas of distress, but number one recognizes that one can fall into it if one gets too close. And yet being able to do that means that you can, quote, get exponential returns by virtue of being the non-conventional source of capital in, in a down period. And I've done that two times in my life, both in 73 and 91, in real estate, done it on the industrial side four or five different times. Each time, my ability to see, for lack of a better word, around the corner and see a future created an opportunity for me to buy low and, and in effect, see the value grow. Sam, we're just about out of time, but I want to go to some of the philanthropic work you've done uh, with universities, the teaching that you do. I do a lot of teaching, too, and I love it, and I can certainly see the passion in you uh, as well. And there's a group of people, I think, at an Israeli university that coined the term zealots. So as a zealot, somebody wants to be the next Sam Zell, what would you say to folks listening to the show, I want to be the next Sam Zell? What, would, what, what advice would you give them? Um, I guess I would say that, number one, you got to be tireless. You got to have a lot of energy. I think you've got to be a keen observer. All my life, I've been an incredible reader, and I still read an enormous amount every day. And one of my skill sets is the ability to read and kind of toss away non-relevant stuff and look for themes or look for, you know, things that are different. I mean, in the early uh, 90s, my reading basically showed me stuff that I didn't understand. And then I finally figured out that what we were going through in this country was a deferral of marriage. I graduated in 1963. I was married 10 days later. A year later, 95% of my classmates were married, some with children. Compare that to 40 years later, you know, the average age of of getting married has gone up by 10 years. And that's going to change how we do things. Well, I spent my whole life, you know, looking for and recognizing changes and trends and changes in directions that create opportunity. There is no substitute for being aware. There is no substitute for being curious. There is no substitute for being self-confident. Those, I think, are the real things that matter. Uh, You know, the word failure doesn't even exist in my lexicon. Maybe it didn't work out, but there are no failures. And so there have been many times where I've been hit down and, and I get up off my ass and start over again and keep climbing the mountain. And I like to accuse Confucius of saying that the definition of a schmuck is someone who's reached his goals. I've never reached my goals. And I've constantly moved the bar forward so that I get up every morning and there's a new hill to climb, a new thing to challenge. And that's what turns me on. 
And today is no different than 40 years ago. Almost every speech you've ever given, there's somebody who says, you know, well, what you've done is really incredible, but, you know, for me, life is very different, and I don't have the same kind of opportunities you have. That's just not true. There always will be opportunities. That's what makes America great, and that's what we should be doing. Well, Sam, I can't finish on a better note than that. Sam Zell, thank you for joining The Weekly Take. My pleasure. Thank you. For more, please visit cbre.com slash theweeklytake. You could read more about Sam Zell and also about our show. You can drop us a note, too, and let us know what you're thinking. Your take, if you will, on The Weekly Take. Whether you joined us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Please remember to share the show with your colleagues and friends. Thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.